this program is made possible by the support of the members of the show. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to a supersized edition of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, Media Matters, The Daily Show, The Young Turks, and Countdown, with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Colbert Report. But first, we pull a special clip from the archives from The Al Franken Show. What? sucks and I hope it never comes again but even if it does please just stay on the bench yeah just keep on keeping on girl you're doing just fine until January 20 of 2009 with a one-sentence letter that was delivered to the White House at 10.30 this morning. 
My dear Mr. President, having concluded that it would be in the best interests of the court to have my successor appointed and confirmed well in advance of the commencement of the court's next term, I shall retire from regular active service as an associate justice. Most respectfully yours, John Paul Stevens. Eleven days before his 90th birthday, the oldest member of the United States Supreme Court, Justice John Paul Stevens, officially announces today that he is stepping down. His retirement, not exactly a surprise. It had been speculated upon for weeks now, but today the justice made it official. When the letter arrived at the White House this morning, its intended recipient was on board Air Force One. But once President Obama returned to the White House today, he gave some early insight into what he's going to be looking for in a replacement for Justice Stevens. I view the process of selecting a Supreme Court nominee as among uh, my most serious responsibilities as president. And while we cannot replace Justice Stevens's experience or wisdom, I will seek someone in the coming weeks with similar, similar qualities. An independent mind, a record of excellence and integrity, a fierce dedication to the rule of law, and a keen understanding of how the law affects the daily lives of the American people. It will also be someone who, like Justice Stevens, knows that in a democracy, powerful interests must not be allowed to drown out the voices of ordinary citizens. Just about immediately, Senate Republicans started to give indications that they're gearing up for a big fight here. I've got to say, uh, uh, he has a propensity to choose people who don't care what the law is. They're going to make the law from the bench. Judges are not supposed to do that. And I personally am very upset about it. Except, of course, in the Citizens United case, where the court totally made up the law. But that was in a good way, right, Senator? In addition to those in the Senate who will actually decide the fate of President Obama's judicial nominee, there is also a whole industry in Washington that exists solely for days like this. It exists to not only fight over Supreme Court nominations, but to raise as much money as possible off of nomination fights. It's a Washington machine that it's weird. It, like, lies semi-dormant for years, and then it awakens every time there's a Supreme Court vacancy. And all of a sudden, right now, you can consider that machine woken up and cranked up. The conservative group Judicial Watch blasting out a statement today warning that if President Obama nominates a, quote, empathetic liberal judicial activist, he will have a fight on his hands. They didn't include an emoticon of themselves rubbing their hands in glee at that possibility, but it was implied. With a simple one-sentence letter delivered to the White House at 10.30 this morning, Supreme Court confirmation season has officially begun. And among all Washington political events, not much tops Supreme Court confirmation hearings in terms of unrestrained, over-the-top, civic-minded drama. It wasn't always this way. Nominees weren't even always required to publicly testify on their own behalf. The first one to do so was Harlan Fisk Stone. He was nominated by Calvin Coolidge in 1925. It wasn't until the 50s that nominees regularly began testifying publicly like they do now. And it wasn't until the 80s and the advent of nationally televised multi-day hearings that things really, really got rolling in terms of the political drama. On July 1st, 1987, Ronald Reagan nominated Circuit Court Judge Robert Bork to fill the vacancy that had just been created on the Supreme Court. Within 45 minutes of the Bork nomination, 45 minutes, Democratic Senator Ted Kennedy stormed onto the Senate floor to declare Judge Bork's nomination essentially dead on arrival. 
Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions, blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters, and school children could not be taught about evolution. That's 45 minutes into the nomination process. How's that for opposition? Mr. Bork was, in fact, one of the most radical jurists ever proposed in modern times for any judgeship, let alone for the Supreme Court. The fight to keep him off the court set new standards for how these things are fought. People for the American Way enlisted Gregory Peck, the Hollywood legend, uh, in the fight against Bork. There's a special feeling of awe people get when they visit the Supreme Court of the United States the ultimate guardian of our rights as Americans. That's why we set the highest standards for our highest court justices, and that's why we're so concerned. This is Gregory Peck. Robert Bork wants to be a Supreme Court justice, but the record shows that he has a strange idea of what justice is. He defended poll taxes and literacy tests, which kept many Americans from voting. Please urge your senators to vote against the Bork nomination. Because if Robert Bork wins his seat on the Supreme Court, it will be for life, his life and yours. Robert Bork ultimately made it through his tumultuous confirmation hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee. But the opposition did not let up as the nomination left the committee and headed for the Senate floor. In Robert Bork's America, there is no room at the end for blacks and no place in the Constitution for women. And in our America, there should be no seat on the Supreme Court for Robert Bork. Robert Bork's nomination to the Supreme Court was eventually voted down on the floor of the Senate, with 58 senators voting against him, including six Republicans. Rivaling Judge Bork in terms of pure drama were the confirmations, uh, confirmation hearings for Judge Clarence Thomas in 1991. His confirmation process was going along sort of swimmingly until news reports leaked that one of his former employees made statements to the FBI accusing him of sexual harassment. That accusation and the treatment in the Senate of the accuser and the accused made the Clarence Thomas confirmation into some of the most riveting television ever filmed in a Senate committee room. It made Clarence Clarence Thomas, a right-wing hero, and Anita Hill, a two-word explanation for a generation of women being utterly skeeved out by politics. This is a circus. It's a national disgrace. And from my standpoint, as a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves to do for themselves, to have different ideas. And it is a message that unless you kowtow to an old order, this is what will happen to you. You will be lynched, destroyed, caricatured by a committee of the US, US Senate rather than hung from a tree. Professor Hill, you said that you took it to mean that Judge Thomas wanted to have sex with you, but in fact he never did ask you to have sex, correct? No, he did not ask me to have sex. He did continually pressure me to go out with him, continually, and he would not accept my explanation as one as being, being valid. Clarence Thomas squeaked out of the Senate Judiciary Committee on a 7-7 split vote. He was then narrowly, narrowly confirmed by the Senate two weeks later. That was not how things went for President George W. Bush's second nominee to the Supreme Court after John Roberts. This morning, I'm proud to announce 
that I'm nominating Harriet Ellen Myers to serve as Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. She has devoted her life to the rule of law and the cause of justice. She will be an outstanding addition to the Supreme Court of the United States. Exactly 24 days later, Harriet Ellen Myers withdrew that nomination to the Supreme Court after going and uh, undergoing a barrage of criticism from all corners of the political world. Uh, for all of the drama and passion and raw emotion that comes out of the Supreme Court nomination process, you know what doesn't happen? Supreme Court nominees don't get filibustered. For as partisan as these nomination fights can get, filibustering really just isn't part of it in the entire history of Supreme Court nominations throughout the years. Exactly one judge has ever been successfully filibustered. In 1968, President Lyndon Johnson wanted to elevate Abe Fortas from being an associate justice on the court to being the chief justice of the court. Mr. Fortas was filibustered. He was not allowed to become chief justice. And the very next year, he resigned from the court under threat of impeachment for having done stuff like accepting thousands of dollars in outside payments on top of his Supreme Court salary. In other words, Abe Fortas was really not your typical case. Aside from Abe Fortas in 1968, nobody ever gets filibustered. Sometimes nominees don't get confirmed by the Senate. Sometimes nominees do get confirmed, but only after undergoing a brutal confirmation process. Sometimes nominees withdraw before even making it to the Senate Judiciary Committee so the brutal nomination process can begin. But by and large, Supreme Court nominees are given the deference of an up or down vote on their nomination. They are not filibustered. As much as this seems like a process that can't possibly get any more polarized, it can't get any more exploited, it can't be any more partisan, it is now, in 2010, officially more polarized, polarized, more exploited, and more partisan than it has ever been before. And you can tell that because Republican members of the Senate are already threatening to filibuster the nominee to replace Justice Stevens, even though there isn't even a nominee yet. Just minutes after President Obama accepted Justice Stevens' resignation today, Republican Senator Lamar Alexander released a statement that reads, quote, I hope President Obama will nominate his successor from the middle and not from the fringe. In truly extraordinary cases, I reserve the prerogative to vote no on confirmation or even to vote to deny an up or down vote. Just saying, I might filibuster. I'm already thinking about it. Same goes for his Republican colleague, John Kyle of Arizona. Are you willing to pledge right now that, uh, that the GOP will not filibuster whoever the president nominates? It'll all depend on what kind of a person it is. I think the president will nominate a qualified person. I hope, however, he does not nominate an overly ideological person. That will be the test. The Republican Party now threatening to filibuster a Supreme Court nominee who doesn't yet exist. Supreme Court nomination battles have brought with them a little bit of everything over the past hundred years or so, but, but Republicans are ratcheting up for a fight for the sake of the fight, one that's basically never been seen before, in the absence of President Obama even picking someone for the job yet. And that is worth remembering when they declare inevitably that the nominee is the worst communist, fringy, ideological pick ever. It's not about the nominee. It's not about the nominee. They're already pledging to filibuster before there is a nominee. They are just licking their chops for a fight for the sake of the fight.
Upon hearing the news of Justice John Paul Stevens retiring, conservative leaders Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh speculate about President Obama's potential replacement to the court. Probably want to get uh, some radical, wild-haired liberal nominated and confirmed if they can. You mark my words, a radical is coming. I mean, if he's smart, he will find a gay, handicapped, black woman who's an immigrant. You may remember similar rhetoric from the nomination of Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Here's Rush Limbaugh from just one year ago. We need a uh, teenage single mother who's gay, who's a lesbian, uh, who's dirt poor, African-American, and disabled. Whether they're qualified to be on the court doesn't matter because their qualifications, Obama just said what they are. D.C. President Obama has announced his nominee to replace Justice John Paul Stevens on the Supreme Court. And so, if you please... Release the keg! President Obama releases the keg! He's officially named Solicitor General Elena Kagan. As his nominee, and if you're a court watcher like me, I watch the court, Supreme Court, District Court, Traffic Court, Food Court, <laughs> Sparrow, Johnny Rockets, and Panda Express. <laughs> Your Honor, I plead delicious as <laughs> But a sophisticated court watcher has two thoughts. What is Kagan's position on stare decisis? And two, who? who? She's a total blank slate when it comes to constitutional issues. She's an unproven entity. We don't know much about her record. With a slim paper trail, a recordless blank entity with no paper trail. <laughs> She's off the grid. She lives in the shadows. She is dark man. <laughs> Seriously, do we, uh, do we have any information about this one? Helene is very short. She used to smoke like a chimney. She's got a really good sense of humor. <laughs> okay. She drink beer? Yeah, she drinks beer, she plays poker. She's long been a five-foot, three-inch powerhouse. <laughs> She's a short, chimney-smoking, beer-guzzling poker player. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, she's not dark, man. She's Danny DeVito. <laughs> that doesn't... Do we have any non-size-related information? She clerked for Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Da, da, okay, okay. Clerked for Thurgood Marshall. Now, what information can we glean for, from, from their relationship? Thurgood Marshall, who called her shorty. For God's sakes! She's 5'3". That's not unreasonable. It's not like you would see her and go, oh my God, what happened to her? <laughs> it's not like somebody would call 911. <laughs> I've done a terrible thing to my neck. <laughs> this is boring, her height and her smoking. Because she's never been a judge, we're gonna have to scrape for some confirmation controversy, some kind of wise Latina bomb, a good old-fashioned borking, a pubic hair and a Coke can, something, <laughs> something we can sink our teeth into. 
the Harriet Myers of the left. This is a, a, a potential nomination that's closer to Harriet Myers. Oh, sh no, you, oh, no, you dropped the H-bomb comparing her to Harriet Myers. Excuse me for just one second. Myers, 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 Harry Myers, Harry Myers, Oscar Myers, Jacoby Myers, hold on, hold on, Meyer Angelou, here we go, here we go, Harry Myers, former Bush crony, Supreme Court nominated and then quickly withdrawn, name now synonymous with lack of intellectual heft and reckless nominating. Ouch. How similar are they? The difference between her and Harriet Myers is Ivy League. That's it. So she's exactly like Harriet Myers, except for the dumb part. <laughs> Just like the only difference between me and Michael Jordan is athletic ability. This episode is being sponsored by Audible. They're the world's largest resource for downloadable audio content like books, periodicals, premium podcasts, and more. For a limited time until June 30th, Audible is offering listeners of this show a free audiobook download of your choice. It's a pretty good deal. Simply visit audiblepodcast.com slash best. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best. Alana Kagan has been nominated to the Supreme Court by Barack Obama, as we suspected. So, uh, who is Alana Kagan? Excellent question. I have no idea, and neither does anybody else. Now, do I know what her career track is? Yes, she's the current Solicitor General. She was the Harvard uh, Law School Dean. Uh, she hasn't been a, a judge before, but she has clerked for judges, etc. Everybody uh, believes she's brilliant and nobody knows a damn thing that she stands for. Uh, that's because she has assiduously, throughout her career, insisted on not revealing any of her positions. Pretty much, I would say on 90% of the matters. Which, of course, politically speaking, is also brilliant. Because apparently our Supreme Court justices are supposed to be blank slates. They're supposed to walk in and be like, what? Law? Constitution? Never heard of it. I've got fresh opinions on everything. I, don't want, I wouldn't want to prejudge anything. I mean, you come to the age of 50, as Alana Kagan is, and you don't have ideas on uh, where the Constitution stands, that makes me question things, right? Now, of course, they say she does have opinions on that, but she's just not going to share them with you, because that would be prejudging things. Now, as things stand, that would be the same exact thing as every other Supreme Court nominee picked by a Republican or, or a Democrat. They always come in there and go, what? Opinions? I, I got no opinions, none whatsoever. No, every case I'm going to just call balls and strikes, as Judge Roberts said, when he then later became a complete conservative right-winger who voted that conservative right-wing position on every single case before the Supreme Court. Now, don't get me wrong. Roberts was always a conservative right-winger. He just pretended he wasn't during the hearings. But at least with Roberts, you did know where he stood because he had a huge track record. Same with Alito. They were probably among the top, uh, you know, I, I don't want to put a number on it, top five, top ten, but they were certainly among the top uh, conservative judges in the country. Everybody knew it. When you did a list of conservative judges in the country, the most right-wing 
Roberts and Alito were on that list, and they were at the top of that list, especially Alito. But based on his record, so was Roberts, because they had a track record. Now, I know the whole thing is disingenuous when they go in front of Congress. I ignore all of that, right? Now, so why am I a little upset today? Because, as always, Barack Obama, the centrist, the guy who loves to do conciliation, gradualism, and incrementalism, uh, has picked someone who we don't have any idea what her record is or what her positions are. Why? Because then the Republicans can't criticize her. In fact, many Republicans have voted for her in the past. She has praised Republicans before. They have praised her. Oh, it's going to be such an easy victory. And after uh, we get that victory, they'll put up the mission accomplished banner. Be like, oh, another win for the president. He's got huge momentum. What is this momentum going towards? What's the point of the win? I thought the point, one of the central points of electing a progressive president was that you would get progressive Supreme Court picks. Now, instead, we get kind of centrist, but we don't really know picks, because why Obama wants to be a centrist, Obama doesn't want to anger the Republicans. Well, okay, thanks a lot for uh, another profile and courage, Mr. President. Now, I don't get me wrong. Ilana Kagan might turn out to be a fantastic Supreme Court justice. I just don't know. Shouldn't we know? Shouldn't we pick someone we know is a I'm sorry, a progressive? These days, it is a conservative usually. But no, if we pick the progressive president, we should have a progressive Supreme Court justice. And you should have a justice that pisses me off for being too far left, because I view myself as a judicial moderate, right? But that's a joke. You're never going to get anything like that. Sonia Sotomayor who has done a great job since then. And that's what leads a lot of people to say, well, see, Obama knows something secret. But this is a democracy. We can't have the, tr oh, no, no, just trust the president. He's so smart. He's so brilliant. He knows all these things you can't possibly know. And look, he did an okay job one other time. So just, just, just trust him that Kagan's going to be okay. I don't know. No, I don't. That's not how it's supposed to work. You should have someone that you know has a progressive track record. Now, Finally, and there's a hundred angles to this, but I want to wrap this portion of it up by telling you why I'm upset in the first place, okay? It's not because I'm a judicial progressive and liberal and, God, I wanted somebody super liberal on the court. No, the problem is Obama. It's not Kagan. Because his reaction to everything is, uh, okay, okay, I, I give in. I give in. Don't fight me. Don't hurt. Hate me, Republicans. Don't. Please, please, please. So we got a so-called $50 billion bailout in financial reform bill. It's not, he makes the case, says it's not a bailout. And then what does he do? He caves in. And he says, all right, I'm going to take the bailout out. He's, Joe Wilson yells at him, says, you lie on immigration issue. What did he do? Do you know this? He caved into Joe Wilson. They took out that provision that Joe Wilson was complaining about. You go to any issue, Gitmo detainees. Oh, we're going to try them in civilian trials. Oh, Republicans got mad. Forget it. We're not going to try them in civilian trials. You know what he did, happened over the weekend? You know all these arguments about the Miranda warnings? Holder came out and said, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, we might not give Miranda warnings to terrorist suspects. Are you kidding me? How unbelievably unprincipled are you? How scared of a fight are you? I mean, they make their case a little bit in public. They're like, no, Miranda warnings are good. Oh, wait, don't, don't hit me. Don't hit me. Okay, okay. No more Miranda warnings. That has not been declared yet, but that is what Holder is saying. They're leaning in the direction of they're going to study it. So now you've got a Supreme Court uh, nominee here, and he's, you remember, she would be replacing 
John Paul Stevens, who is now considered, who was earlier considered conservative, then he was considered moderate, but the playing field keeps shifting and shifting. He's now considered the most liberal out of all the justices. So you're going to replace the most liberal with a centrist. As Glenn Greenwald points out, you know what that leaves you with? That leaves you with, even though you elected Barack Obama, a Supreme Court that is to the right of when he came in. Now, how does that make any sense? He's afraid of a fight. He's afraid of it. He's deathly afraid of it. The only people he doesn't mind fighting is you, progressives. They're going to love it if people attack Alana Kagan from the left. Rahm Emanuel is going to rush that to his bestest friends in Washington. To all the reporters who go, oh, did you see that? Oh, uh, liberals attacking us. We're so centrist. God, we're so reasonable, aren't we? Look at all these liberals attacking us. No, no, no. But we're going to fight back. But get away here, liberals, progressives. Get out. Skit, scat. Okay? And then they're going to champion that as uh, how wonderfully moderate they are. I've been torn apart so many times. I've been hurt so many times before. And a miss. President Obama today announcing his second nomination to the Supreme Court. Solicitor General Elena Kagan, the woman who argues the administration's cases to the Supreme Court. And in our fifth story tonight, the president igniting a political firestorm less on the right, where between imbecilic responses, some Republicans are admitting Kagan's acceptability. Rather, more so on the left, where a host of concerns arose since and well before today's announcement. Mr. Obama's nominee would make history, giving the court three women simultaneously, and also for the first time, giving it not a single Protestant. As was widely reported before today, however, Mr. Obama was interested in finding a judge who could, at least on occasion, win over what remains of the swing vote on the high court, most notably Justice Anthony Kennedy. Consensus building made explicit today as one of the criteria. But Elena is respected and admired not just for her intellect and record of achievement, but also for her temperament, her openness to a broad array of viewpoints, her habit, to borrow a phrase from Justice Stevens, of understanding before disagreeing, her fair-mindedness and skill as a consensus builder. That insistence on relying on more than law alone, on life experience, already drawing fire from the right as Republicans insist that becoming the first female solicitor general and Harvard's first female law dean and serving as deputy policy advisor to President Clinton do not count as the real-world experience they demand of nominees who have not served as judges. The American people also want a nominee with the requisite legal experience. They instinctively know that a lifetime position on the Supreme Court does not lend itself to on-the-job training. Of course, one does not need to have prior experience as a judge before being appointed to the country's highest court. But it strikes me that if a nominee does not have judicial experience, they should have substantial litigation experience. Ms. Kagan has neither. Unlike Justice Rehnquist, for instance, who was in private practice for 16 years prior to his appointment as Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel, 
a job he had at the time of his appointment to the Supreme Court. Democrats suggested Republicans would push back against anybody. I told the president, I said, you realize if you had nominated Moses, the lawgiver, uh, somebody raised, but he doesn't have a birth certificate. Where's his birth certificate? You know, I mean, come on. Let's, let's, uh, uh, we're talking about a Supreme Court justice. Let's look at the qualifications. Vote up, vote down. She will be confirmed. Solicitor General Kagan herself today doing nothing to ease Republican suspicions about her populism. The court is an extraordinary institution. In the work it does, and in the work it can do for the American people by advancing the tenets of our Constitution, by upholding the rule of law, and by enabling all Americans, regardless of their background or their beliefs, to get a fair hearing and an equal chance at justice. My professional life has been marked by great good fortune. I clerked for a judge, Abner Mikva, who represents the best in public service and for a justice, Thurgood Marshall, who did more to promote justice over the course of his legal career than did any lawyer in his lifetime. Republican Chairman Michael Steele latched onto a previous tribute to Justice Marshall, specifically Ms. Kagan quoting Marshall as calling the original Constitution defective, a critique explicitly made in reference to the constitutional endorsement of slavery. That's right, the GOP defending slavery again. But it is Kagan's defense of Bush and Obama policies on detainees that has drawn substantive fire. Kagan in her confirmation hearing for Solicitor General arguing the executive branch can call anywhere in the world a battlefield and thus deny suspects criminal court due process. When you talk about the physical battlefield, if our intelligence agency should capture someone in the Philippines that is suspected of financing al-Qaeda worldwide, would you consider that person part of the battlefield, even though we're in the Philippines, if they were involved in al-Qaeda activity? Holder said, uh, the, the attorney general said, yes, I would. Do you agree with that? I do. Kagan has also drawn criticism for the meager female and minority hiring record while she was the dean at Harvard Law, as well as from the right attacks innuendo about her ban on campus military recruiting because don't ask, don't tell violated campus anti-discrimination guidelines, a ban she reversed after the Supreme Court ruled it would cost Harvard millions in federal grants. Hi, everyone. Now, running this podcast is an absolute passion of mine that I've been pursuing for years. But, of course, everyone understands that it takes a little bit of money to get along in this world. And that's where the members come in. Members sign up and donate as little as $5 a month, which allows me to pump out 10 episodes per month now. So while you're thinking about that and rationalizing that little expense, just realize it breaks down to only 50 cents per episode, and it's even less if you sign up for a full year. And beyond that, in return, you get access to a set of members-only raw feeds, and these deliver audio plus video clips from the show as well as a separate feed just for bonus content that would otherwise end up on the cutting room floor. So for details, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks for your support. Elena is respected and admired not just for her intellect and record of achievement, but also for her temperament, her openness to a broad array of viewpoints, her habit, to borrow a phrase from Justice Stevens, of understanding before disagreeing, her fair-mindedness and skill as a consensus builder. 
If you ask her supporters, one of Elena Kagan's greatest assets as a nominee to serve on the Supreme Court is her unique ability to both listen, uh, listen to and, and to appeal to conservatives, even though she is not considered herself to be a conservative. Elena Kagan, according to the prevailing common wisdom, is the kind of nominee who will be able to build unexpected coalitions on the Supreme Court through her openness, her balance, and her estimable powers of persuasion. Track record check. Well, acting as the, governor's, the government's lawyer, Elena Kagan has appeared before the Supreme Court a total of six times. There's audio tape of each of those appearances. So check it out. Here's what happened when Elena Kagan argued the government's case in Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission last year. Spoiler alert here, she lost the case. You might remember it's the one that gave corporations the right to spend limitlessly in U.S. elections. But check out this brief back and forth. It seems, to your shareholder protection rationale, isn't it extraordinarily paternalistic for the government to take the position that shareholders are too stupid to keep track of what their corporations are doing and can't sell their shares or object in the corporate context if they don't like it? I don't think so, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, I mean, I, for one, can't keep track of what my, uh, 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 the, where, where I hold um, Well, you have a busy job. You can't expect it's not that I but it is job. extraordinary. It's, it's, I mean, the, it's, the idea, and as I understand the rationale, is we, we, the government, Big Brother, has to protect shareholders from themselves. They might give money, they might buy shares in a corporation, and they don't know that the corporation is taking out radio ads. The well, government has to keep an eye on their interests. I, I, I appreciate that. It's not that I have a busy job. It's that I, like most Americans, own shares through mutual funds. You don't know where your mutual funds are investing, uh, uh, so you don't know where so, you are. So it is. I mean, I understand. So it is a paternalistic interest. We, the government, have to protect uh, you naive shareholders. If you didn't know who the two people speaking were in that clip, do you think you could tell who was the lawyer and who was the judge? Of course, the male voice is Chief Justice John Roberts. The female voice is the United States Solicitor General Elena Kagan, the nominee to be the next Supreme Court justice. She was acting then in her capacity as the government's lawyer. But what you just heard, that exchange with Chief Justice Roberts, is not just an example of the vague kind of situation in which Elena Kagan would need to be persuasive as a Supreme Court justice. That was the actual guy she would be trying to persuade every day for the rest of her life in this job. And the funny thing is, Chief Justice Roberts didn't necessarily sound all that persuaded in that back and forth. To the extent that the court matters in terms of what American policy is, the leaders on the court matter in terms of defining what American policy is. It's not just the Chief Justice. It's the center of gravity on the court. Who affects it? Who's getting their way among those nine justices? Based on the evidence that exists, it is maybe worth being all rational and fact-based about it and wondering if the common wisdom that Solicitor General Elena Kagan would be a great consensus builder might be based on a foundation that's a little thin. Our top item today, the right-wing media continues its all-out assault on Supreme Court nominee Elena Kagan, claiming that she banned military recruiters from Harvard Law School or that she is anti-military. To lead an effort to kick military recruiters off of the college campus. By the way, in the middle of a war, Dick, Bill Crystal 
said today that she is anti-military. All that we know about this woman is that she banned military recruiters from Harvard. Not allowing the military to recruit on campus clearly was very radical. What about uh, the fact that when she was the dean of Harvard Law, she kept military recruiters off campus? While they were briefly barred from the Office of Career Services in accordance with Harvard's non-discrimination policy, students could access them from the school's Veterans Association. Data additionally shows that this did not adversely impact military recruitment. Yesterday, Barack Obama nominated Solicitor General Elena Kagan for the Supreme Court. And folks, I've been waiting months for this because I loves me a good fight. And you know conservatives are going to go after whoever he nominates. So fellas, drop a couple of Coke cans into an empty pillowcase and have a good old-fashioned cell block beatdown. She was a moderate and conservative within the Clinton White House. She would be a moderate on the courts. She's got the perfect resume to get through. You can be liberal and be a great justice. Her demeanor and style is friendly and collegial. She's a very charming individual. What? <laughs> Come on, RNC. You gotta get the bloodlust. Get out there and bite at anything that moves. <laughs> Separate her from the pack. Snap her back leg. Find some dirt on her. Send out the flying monkeys. Fly, my pretties. Fly! <laughs> Until the monkeys return. <laughs> Looks like I'm on my own trying to derail the nomination. So it's time to bring out my anti-Kagan research straws, and I will attempt to grasp at them. <laughs> now, each of these straws are digitally encoded with damning, thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Jarrell. <laughs> I stole this from the set of Superman 2. Each of these straws are digitally encoded with damning information on Elena Kagan, which I can display on my Kryptonian Blu-ray player. <laughs> I had to destroy a planet, but the picture quality is fantastic. <laughs> so here we go. The first evidence. Kagan would be the youngest justice. She's 50 years old. 50! <laughs> 50! She's just a kid. And she's going to be distracting all the other justices with her squealing over Justin Bieber. Okay, that's something. Let's, let, let's build the case. The next straw I'm grasping at is... What judicial experience does she have? In her senior year of high school, Elena Kagan posed in a judge's robe with gavel. Hey, if dressing up in a school play qualifies her to be a judge, then I'm qualified to be a singing nun. <laughs> if only there was something more, something to fire up the conservative base, a shocking revelation that would distract from her stellar qualifications, one that is both divisive and controversial, a lightning rod issue that could galvanize opposition. Oh, well. Here's the last straw. I guess I'll give it a whirl. 
She is exactly 50 years old. She is single with no children. She loves softball and poker. She enjoys an occasional cigar. Fun. She drinks beer. Yeah, she drinks beer. She plays poker. She uh... eats bratwurst. <laughs> I can't say that for sure. A 50-year-old single woman who loves softball, cigars, poker, and beer, but not interested in a plump, juicy sausage. <laughs> now, now a lot of assumptions, a lot of assumptions could be made based on that information, and I will not make them. Even though they would be very exciting, scandalous, polarizing, titillating, and a ratings bonanza. Now, I don't know about you, but I would love to hear what I'm not talking about. Because I could fill weeks of shows with this debate, which I will not have. And here not to have it with me is Newsweek contributing editor and Slate Magazine legal correspondent, Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me. You're, you're, you're the senior legal correspondent for Slate. Now, you, you say that Elena Kagan is completely inscrutable, okay? Why, why didn't Obama pick somebody more scrutable? I think that scrutable was Bork, and ever since then, the whole object of the game is to have been raised in a test tube. Well, it seems like she, she, she was. She's 50 years old, and there doesn't seem to be anything that anybody can pin her down on. How, how is that possible? It's, um, Did she just land on the planet last week? No. She, she is an incredibly, incredibly beloved teacher. Her students adore her. The faculty at Harvard thinks she walks on water. She has this... Well, the faculty at Harvard thinks that they walk well, on water. She has this magical ability to look deep in your eyes and make you love her. And I think she's and done she's it. only five foot two, and she's magical. Is she a leprechaun? <laughs> she could be. She could be. That might be that straw. Uh, yes. Now, uh, you know, uh, as you know, there's a subject that I'm not touching here. There are lots of things being said on the blogosphere, burning around the edges of the political landscape, but it hasn't turned into a bonfire, okay? I hope you're not here to talk about it either. I, I'm not, but Good, I... Good, so let's, let's not talk about it together. Let's not. <laughs> Why aren't the conservatives going after her? If she's going to crush the conservative opposition, then, 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 then why isn't there blood in the water? Why aren't they tearing her limb from limb? Well, I think that, for one thing, she only got 31 no vo votes when she was up for the Solicitor General position. But so... that's not a lifetime appointment. No, that's true. That's true. But I think that it's going to be very hard to say, I voted no last time. I voted yes last time, but... Uh, she's a Mets fan? I didn't know that. I think it's going to be very hard to find something new on her, and I think that it's going to be talk of but filibustering is not happening. What about this news that her nickname is Shorty? Yeah. Because what I can tell from rap lyrics, uh, <laughs> Shorty be doing all types of things <laughs> that, that others are critical of.
Will that be admissible in the hearings? I, I am willing to bet that the hearings are going to be about one thing and one thing only, and that is her lack of judicial experience. That how can it possibly be that someone could not come off the bench, that somebody could come up from some different route. Yeah, don't you have to have been a judge to be a justice? I mean, you have to have an experience of choosing between, you know, two choices. Yeah, no. You know, I... who's, you know who's looking for a job next year? Simon Cowell. <laughs> Maybe he could get the old SG job if it opens up. Why can't we ask about her private life? Why isn't that being discussed out there? I mean, these people have great control over our private lives. They might decide whether or not abortion is legal. Shouldn't they be held to some high private standard? They get inside our bedrooms. Well, I just want to remind you that we talked about we whispered about Sonia Sotomayor a year ago, not married. We whispered about Harriet Mott Myers several years ago, not married. We whispered about Justice David Souter when he was up for confirmation. Say it with me, not married. Really? We, we even whispered about Chief Justice John Roberts, who was married. So but I, I wish he wasn't. I know. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me. your day. We had a really busy day here at the show. Really busy. I was off yesterday. Chris Hayes did a really good job hosting the show yesterday. You might have thought. I thought so. But you know, you come back to the office after a day off and it's everything is so busy. I have such a stacked up calendar. I mean, look at this day. 10 o'clock, meet with Harry Reid. 11 o'clock, meet with Mitch McConnell. Noon, meet with Patrick Leahy. 12.45, meet with Jeff Sessions. 2.30, meet with Dick Durbin. 3.15, meet with Orrin Hatch. 4 o'clock, meet with Herb Cole. 5 o'clock, meet with Diane Feinstein. Th then pass out, Whew, right? That wasn't my day, actually. That was the day of Supreme Court nominee Elena Kagan, who presumably had something else to do today before her life became the crazy thing that it necessarily becomes when you are a nominee to the Supreme Court of the United States. One of the most interesting things about her nomination thus far is what's happening on the left. The argument among progressives about whether or not Elena Kagan is liberal enough, whether or not her replacing Justice John Paul Stevens, who's become the liberal anchor of the court, would actually move the court to the right. That's where the most substantive debate over Elena Kagan's Supreme Court nomination is taking place. We'll be digging into that subject uh, later on in the show tonight. But first, though, we, we do need to cover briefly what has become the least substantive but most entertaining criticism of the Elena Kagan nomination, and that is happening on the right. Now, nobody really thinks the right is going to be able to stop this nomination, but the wildly thrown and missed punches coming from the right have been very fun to watch. For example, Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas says he's super concerned about the fact that Elena Kagan has never been a judge before. Because that, of course, means she's totally unqualified for the Supreme Court. She won't even know how to put on the robe. 
Senator Cornyn's uh, put out a statement that says, quote, Ms. Kagan is a surprising choice because she lacks judicial experience. Most Americans believe that prior judicial experience is a necessary credential for a Supreme Court justice. It should be noted that John Cornyn's feelings on this subject may vary depending on which nominee we're talking about. Do you think that the Myers Foundation shows that it's, it would be almost impossible for someone to serve on the Supreme Court now if they haven't been a judge before? Well, I certainly hope that's not the case, and, and it, it shouldn't be the case. I mean, my one reason I felt so uh, strongly about uh, Harriet Myers' qualifications is I thought she would fill some very important gaps in the Supreme Court, because right now you have uh, people who've been federal judges, circuit judges, uh, most of their lives, or academicians, and what you see is a, a lack of grounding in, uh, in reality and common sense that I think would be uh, very beneficial. But Elena Kagan is a surprising choice because she lacks judicial experience. That's the, the, the same John Cornyn now raising concerns about Elena Kagan's lack of judicial experience back in 2005 was mourning the loss of would-be Supreme Court Justice Harriet Myers, hoping out loud that her withdrawal wouldn't make it impossible for non-judges to become Supreme Court justices in the future. Unless, of course, we're talking about a non-judge nominated by a Democrat, know what I mean. Republican Senator Jim DeMint of South Carolina is also worried about Elena Kagan having not been a judge, saying in a statement, quote, I'm concerned that she has no judicial experience to give Americans confidence that she will be impartial in her decisions. Of course, it should be noted that Jim DeMint's feelings on this subject may also vary depending on which nominee we're talking about. When Harriet Myers, for example, was nominated, Mr. DeMint said, quote, Ms. Myers has a long and distinguished career as one of the foremost lawyers in the country. She would bring a wealth of personal experience to the Supreme Court, even though she's never been a judge. But I thought only judges knew how to be impartial. Republican Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama has maybe topped everybody, though. He has also become suddenly overcome with fear of non-judges on the Supreme Court, saying this week, quote, Ms. Kagan's lack of judicial experience and short time as Solicitor General, arguing just six cases before the court, is troubling. Want to know what Jeff Sessions did not find troubling? Harriet Meyer's lack of judicial experience and the zero cases that she'd argued before the Supreme Court. Here's what Jeff Sessions said about her nomination in 2005. Quote, my conversations with Harriet Myers indicate that she's a first-rate lawyer and a fine person. Her legal skills are proven and her reputation throughout the legal community is excellent. It is not necessary that she have previous experience as a judge in order to serve on the Supreme Court. It's perfectly acceptable to nominate outstanding lawyers to that position. Perfectly acceptable to nominate outstanding lawyers. Unless they're nominated by a Democrat. Nudge, nudge. But Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has another objection to Elena Kagan's nomination. It's not just her non-judginess that bothers Mr. McConnell. He has found new grounds on which to object to her nomination. Here's Senator McConnell speaking today from the Senate floor. Well, it's my hope that the Obama administration doesn't think the ideal Supreme Court nominee is someone who would rubber stamp its policies. But this nomination does raise the question. As Solicitor General, Ms. Kagan is a member of the president's administration. The president on Monday also said that we're friends. Friends? The president can't be friends with his own Supreme Court nominee? In our constitutional order, justices are not on anybody's team. 
they have a very different role to play. As a Supreme Court Justice, uh, Ms. Kagan's job description would change dramatically. Far from being a member of the President's team, she'd suddenly be serving as a check on it. She's never had to develop the judicial habit of saying no to an administration. And we can't simply assume that she would. See, you can't just go from doing one job to doing another. You can't just switch which branch of government you work for, which is why Mitch McConnell was so opposed to the Harriet Myers nomination in 2005. I mean, she wasn't just Solicitor General representing the whole administration like Kagan is, the whole government like Kagan is. Harriet Myers was President Bush's White House counsel representing the White House. And before that, she was President Bush's personal lawyer for years. The lawyer for his gubernatorial campaign, the lawyer for his presidential campaign, a longtime close personal friend of the president. So Mitch McConnell was, for obvious reasons, opposed to her nomination too, right? Mr. President, today I rise to commend President Bush for his choice of Harriet Myers to be the nation's next Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. Ms. Myers has an exemplary record of service to our country. Uh, she'll bring to the court a lifetime of experience in various levels of government and at the highest levels of the legal uh, profession. She'll make a fine addition to the Supreme Court and I look forward to her confirmation. Left, right, and center, nobody expects that there won't be objections raised or things to be debated when it comes to Elena Kagan's nomination to the Supreme Court. But if you're going to raise what you are pretending or principled objections to her, you might want to Google yourself first to remind yourself what you used to say your principles were. And this has been another episode of Helpful Hints for Hypocrites. Our top item today, after President Obama announced that he had chosen Solicitor General Elena Kagan as his Supreme Court nominee, the right-wing media, specifically Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh, were quick to portray her as a radical activist. Uh, Elena Kagan, another left activist. She is a pure, academic, elitist radical. In fact, Kagan is considered one of the more moderate choices for the Supreme Court and has been described as fair-minded and well-respected. Here's the Weekly Standard, Stephen Hayes. But I think it's also the fact that she treats conservative arguments with respect, that she seems to genuinely be interested in understanding where conservative uh, jurists are coming from. Kagan has also won praise from Reagan administration Solicitor General Charles Freed, Bush administration Assistant Attorney General Jack Goldsmith, and several other conservative political and legal experts. First attack against Alana Kagan by conservatives is that she is gay. Now, of course, she is not gay. Has that ever stopped them before? No. Uh, for example, the Wall Street Journal had a large picture, and they don't normally do pictures. On their front page, they had a picture of Alana Kagan uh, in a softball outfit from uh, decades ago. Now, why did they put her in a softball outfit? Why take that picture instead of a picture of her with the president or a picture of her at Harvard uh, Law School. Who plays softball? Lesbians do. Now, look, maybe it was just totally random that they took that picture. It could be. I, ha, did they do that for anybody else? I didn't see it. Did they take a picture of Robert Cirillito doing ballet? I don't remember that. Now, back then, 
Wall Street Journal wasn't owned by Rupert Murdoch, who is, uh, will turn that paper into a conservative propaganda garbage paper and is beginning to do that as we speak. Okay? The Wall Street Journal's uh, news side used to be terrific. Their editorial side, deeply conservative, and they got a right to be. Okay? But now, of course, the polluting of the reporting comes in, and all of a sudden we have a picture of Alana Kagan playing softball. But that's, if this was the only thing where they intimated that she's gay, of course that would be ridiculous. No, but they also come out and say it. Andrew Sullivan, a blogger who I agree with on other issues, uh, said flat out, came out and said, oh yeah, she's definitely gay. Then we had a conservative blogger writing for CBS News saying she's openly gay. Well, I mean, one, she's not gay. Number two, you can't possibly claim she's openly gay if she's actually openly straight, if she says she's straight. Now, of course, first of all, who cares? Who cares who she's sleeping with? Look at how stupid conservatives are, right? Not, oh, wait, wait what's her views on the First Amendment? Because remember how they, care, they claim the Tea Party guys? Constitution, oh, we care so much about the guys. Are you gay? Okay, Constitution, who cares what her positions are? Put that aside. I want to know who she's sleeping with. Who do you like? Do you like uh, uh, Tim McGraw or Faith Hill? Why do you care, you idiots? Okay, so this is the guys we got to deal with. Now, uh, and how they had to deal with it is they had to do uh, pr press reports. They had to get people who know her to go and talk to people like Ben Smith at Politico. Sarah Walzer uh, said, uh, quote, I've known her for most of her adult life, and I know she's straight. She dated men when we were in law school. We talked about men who in our class was cute who she would like to date, all of those things. She definitely dated when she was in D.C. after law school. When she was in Chicago, she just didn't find the right person because she's still unmarried at 50. Why do we have to do this? This is crazy. Who, uh, no, 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 she really liked that guy, and she thought he had nice abs and an ass. No, man, oh, she's straight, she's straight. I mean, it's going out of your way to, to say this stuff is absurd. So Ellie Spitzer has to come out because they went to Princeton together, and he said, I did not go out with her. He doesn't want to put himself in more trouble. He said, but other guys did. I knew, oh, she liked guys. I'll tell you what. She liked the... I mean, come on now. She's up for the Supreme Court. Uh, to say this is irrelevant is a gross understatement. But we have to play these goofy games because of the conservatives think that this is a legitimate topic, and then they get the whole country talking about uh, this as if it, it matters at all. So... Now, when they do that, then, of course, I turn around and defend Alana Kate, because that is not the problem. You, I don't want to call them idiots, but they, they pull me back in. Every day they force me to do it. Give me a substantive point about her that you don't like. Let's have a real conversation. Can you try this, an intelligent conversation, where you say, look, I don't like her policy position on this? What do we get with Sonia Sotomayor? We got, um, yeah, wise Latina, you're right, affirmative action, yeah. Top of her class at Princeton, you know, it, Ivy League Law School, everything you can imagine. No, she's dumb Hispanic lady. Alana Kagan, top of her class, the Ivy League, Harvard Law School, Dean, Solicitor General, yeah, whatever, she's a dyke. I mean, how are you going to argue with these guys? How do you argue with cavemen? You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. 
The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestoftheleft.com and use our Amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. We begin with the Supreme Court and the entire 220-year-long history of the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. Exactly 111 people have served in the capacity of Supreme Court justice. 108 of those 111 have been men. 97.3%. If President Obama's nomination to the court of Elena Kagan today is confirmed by the Senate, that percentage will drop from 97.3% to 96.4%. USA! USA! Here was the president today with his nominee announcing the second Supreme Court nomination of his not yet two-year-old presidency. While we can't presume to replace Justice Stevens's wisdom or experience, I have selected a nominee who I believe embodies that same excellence, independence, integrity, and passion for the law, and who can ultimately provide that same kind of leadership on the court. Our Solicitor General and my friend, Elena Kagan. Thank you, Mr. President. I am honored and I am humbled by this nomination and by the confidence you have shown in me. The court is an extraordinary institution in the work it does and in the work it can do for the American people by advancing the tenets of our Constitution, by upholding the rule of law, and by enabling all Americans, regardless of their background or their beliefs, to get a fair hearing and an equal chance at justice. If she is confirmed by the Senate, Elena Kagan would join Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor as the third woman on the United States Supreme Court. If she's confirmed, that means that three of the four women to have ever served on the Supreme Court will all be serving at the same time. If, if she's confirmed. Modern Supreme Court nomination confirmation battles are about as close to political blood sport as Washington has. As of today, as expected, let the games begin. It strikes me that if a nominee does not have judicial experience, they should have substantial litigation experience. Ms. Kagan has neither. Senate Republicans pouncing today on the fact that Elena Kagan has never served as a judge. The last time someone who wasn't a judge was nominated to be a Supreme Court justice was in 2005 when President Bush nominated White House Counsel Harriet Myers to fill the seat of Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. That nomination lasted all of 25 days, whereupon Mr. Bush was forced to withdraw his pick for lack of political support. The relevant comparison between Harriet Myers and Elena Kagan is not actually about judicial qualifications. There really are no serious questions about whether Elena Kagan is qualified for the Supreme Court. Harriet Myers had essentially been George Bush's lawyer and she'd been White House counsel for a hot minute and that's it. Elena Kagan, on the other hand, is the current Solicitor General of the United States. That's the person who argues the government's cases in front of the Supreme Court. She is the former dean of Harvard Law School. She is a former clerk to the Supreme Court. She 
She has a nationwide coast-to-coast -coast sterling legal reputation. She has been a longtime mainstay of Supreme Court speculation. The invocation of Harriet Meyer's name right now, again, let me repeat, is not because of the qualifications of these two nominees. It's because of this. It's because the thing that killed Harriet Meyer's nomination was resistance from the base of the president's own party. Criticism that the president at the time, George W. Bush, had not chosen someone conservative enough, someone with enough of an overt conservative record to settle conservatives' doubts that she would be a solidly right-wing justice. Advisors say Senate Republicans warned the White House they could not guarantee enough votes for Myers, even from the president's own party. I hope we can all kind of step back. The president can regroup. Uh, I think the president, uh, you know, will go back to his original criteria, which is to appoint a, a conservative uh, to the court. The idea that we now have to roll the dice and wait a number of years to find out if this one works out when it isn't necessary is, I guess, the big bugaboo with me. It is baffling that the president would have passed over that group of people to pick someone who is such an uncertain quantity. Such an uncertain quantity. And so, the Harriet Myers nomination was withdrawn. Not because of liberals, but because of conservatives. And conservatives were then delighted that the very on-the-record doctrinaire conservative Samuel Alito was nominated for that seat instead. There is no mirror between right and left in this country. There is no liberal equivalent to the conservative movement's level of organization and funding and influence on party politics. But in considering a replacement for the justice who is the court's liberal anchor, with a Democratic president, with a 59-seat Democratic majority in the United States Senate, will liberals, with whatever organization they can muster, be satisfied with a nominee whose credentials as a liberal aren't so much evident in her record as they are expected to be a matter of faith. Thanks for listening, everyone. It was a giant show today. Uh, rarely. Uh, but sometimes, and usually on special occasions like this, I just can't decide what to cut out of the show, so I just let it run a little bit long and hope uh, that you don't mind. When that happens, I generally don't want to take up too much of your time here at the end of the show, so I just want to wrap up by thanking a couple of members who make the show possible. And I do like to acknowledge people who go above and beyond with their uh, membership donations. And it just so happens that I have uh, two of those today. So Don M signed up for his monthly membership back on uh, March 7th and has been sticking with the show since then. And Frank W signed up the next month on uh, April 21st, but went ahead and signed up for a full year in advance. Uh, and, and both of those guys uh, went above and beyond the, the minimum asking uh, amount just to help the show out a little bit more. So I wanted to, to acknowledge that thanks to uh, both of those guys and uh, and all of the members who make the show possible. So that's going to be it for today. I hope you will all continue to help uh, make the show possible just by you know telling five friends about it. It makes a huge difference to uh, to spread the word. Take uh, take five minutes, write an email, send it to five friends, and uh, tell them to check out the show. To stay connected between episodes and then even to help spread the word online, you can join up with us on Twitter and Facebook, whichever you prefer, or both. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and all the music used in this and every episode, all of that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. 
So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and the donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Hi there, it's Mike. Here's another unsolicited moment for the podcast listeners. Some things have changed since I sent my first message to Jay. The main change? More podcasts. Ten a month. And there's the iPod apps, the bonus clips divided into different categories for the subscribers. And now Jay has made this podcast his full-time job. Plus, Jay won the Best Produced Podcast of the Year Award. By using the Amazon link on the Best of the Left podcast site, you can contribute with every purchase you make at reduced prices on just about every thing. At Amazon, you can buy music, downloads, furnish your apartments, fill up your cupboards with linens, food, computer supplies, appliances, and on and on and on. Not just the Amazon DVDs and books. In fact, it's hard to name anything that you can't buy at Amazon. And you're contributing at the same time without paying a penny more. Now, my Social Security retirement check doesn't allow for much shopping, but I still manage to make sure Jay has my $5 subscription month after month. It's great to know that even on a meager income, I'm making a big difference in our world, keeping the Best of the Left podcast going and growing and ensuring progressive concepts are introduced, heard, and passed on. I'm proud to be a part of that, and you will be too. Do your part. Do what you can. Thanks.